In the words of my mouth, in the meditation of all of our hearts, be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Some years ago, there was this fashion among Christians um, to wear a bracelet, particularly among Christians. You remember that had four little letters on it. WWJD. You remember this, right? Not long after that was sort of very popular, there was another bracelet kind of thing, the fad that began. And this was a yellow bracelet um, uh, that was began by Lance Armstrong's foundation to sort of fight uh, cancer and to, to fund cancer research. And then after that, a myriad of other uh, causes that started cropping up with these different color, color bracelets and, and they would, you know, sort of whatever, advance whatever they wanted. And, and eventually, uh, the satirist um, Stephen Colbert <laughs> invented this red one that was called the wrist strong bracelet, which was uh, intended just to sort of make fun of the whole bracelet craze. And, um, and I think he effectively ended it. Uh, and so most of us are back to having bare wrists, waiting for gold or diamonds or whatever it was we waited for before. But this, this WWJD bracelet, I kind of liked it in a way. I liked it because it, it, it sort of put the wearer on notice, didn't it? I mean, you, uh, if you were wearing this and you, you went into the restaurant, it, nobody wearing a WWJD bracelet, none of, none of you all would, but anyway, nobody could stiff their server on a tip. I mean, would Jesus stiff a server on a tip? No way. Of course not, right? Um, if you were wearing this, you wouldn't rush ahead of an elderly person walking into the bank. You would hold the door for them and wait because Jesus wouldn't rush ahead of someone and and try to get into the bank before, no matter how slow that person happened to be, he would still wait, right? Jesus wouldn't park in a handicapped space, even if he was driving his grandmother's car and it had a sticker on there that let him get away with it, right? I mean, that is not something Jesus would do. The WWJD bracelet was like a bumper sticker for your body. You know, it was, it was look, uh, I'm on notice. I, hold me accountable. I'm willing to do that. And maybe that's why nobody wears them any longer. You know, that sense of accountability maybe was just too much. But I thought about how that bracelet sort of insinuated the negative. I mean, that's the way that a lot of people looked at it. You know, Jesus wouldn't do that. And so, you know, your lifestyle may be held accountable as, as contradictory to the message that you're wearing. It was that he wouldn't do that. Of course Jesus wouldn't stiff a server on a tip. Of course Jesus wouldn't rush into a bank ahead of somebody. Of course Jesus wouldn't park in a handicapped spot. But those are all things that he wouldn't do. Of course he wouldn't do those. But what sort of positive ethic, what sort of thing would he actually do? I mean, what would Jesus do, the question is, right? And, and, and you know, you've read the Gospels enough to know that he would feed the hungry. He'd heal the sick. He'd reject the sanctimonious. He would, um, he would do all these sorts. He would destroy his own reputation willingly in order to associate with notorious sinners. Those are the sort of pe- things that Jesus would do. He would urge people in his teaching to trust God. Right? He would, he would say to them things like, don't worry about, you know, houses or cars or clothes or money. or Don't worry about those sort of things. But instead, consider the lilies of the field, look at the birds of the air, do these sorts of things, trust God, He'll take care of all the rest. That's what Jesus would do. He would be gentle with hurting people. And He would be angry at those who were not. If someone was trying to pour salt in an open wound, 
He would say, let me tell you a story about a shepherd that had 99 or 100 sheep and one of them went astray. He would leave the 99 and go after the one. Let me tell you a story about a woman who had 10 coins. And when she lost one, she, she searched all over the house until she found it. Let me tell you about a father who had two sons. And one of them decided to go out and be a party animal. And how that father waited and waited and waited for his son to return home. What Jesus would do is he would force us to look at the world in a different way. To look at the world in a way that's different than everyone around us. But since we do like to look at things from the negative side from time to time, maybe we should ask ourselves a question that we really would kind of wanted to ask all along. What sort of things would Jesus not do? I mean, what would he not participate in? Well, one thing we know, he wouldn't live selfishly. He wouldn't live for himself alone. Notice the first temptation in the, in the, the three temptations. Take these stones and turn them into bread. There are lots of food miracles in the Bible. Lots of food miracles. I mean, we have Elijah. You remember the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 17? Of course you do. <laughs> the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 17 where, um, where there's this famine all over the land. And, and God tells him, go to this widow in Zarephath and she'll feed you. And he goes to the, and finds this widow just like God had said. And she says, I only have a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil. I'm going to make a cake. My son and I are going to eat it and we're going to die. <laughs> That's what she says. We're going to eat it and die. And, and, and Elijah says, no, trust God. Feed me because this is what God commands. And you'll find that you'll have enough. And so she does. She takes a step of faith. She feeds um, the prophet. He eats. She goes back to, and, and expects that there will be none left. And voila, in the container there's more flour, more oil. She makes a cake for her son and her, uh, herself. And this goes on day after day after day. There's always more left. There's always more flour. There's always more oil. It's a miracle where God provides food for the hungry. You know that's not the only one, right? You've read through. You know Manna, right? You have manna in the wilderness. Children of Israel, 40 years in the wilderness. They're hungry. What do they get? They get manna from heaven. Every morning, go out, there's bread laying all over the field. They pick it up and they eat it. Jesus feeds 5,000 people with, you know, just a couple loaves and a few fish. The Bible is filled with food miracles. So here's Jesus, hungry. Remember the text. He fasted how long? You knew it. 40 days. 40 days. Yeah, I knew it. It's always 40 days. It's always 40. Trust me, in the Bible, it's always 40 or 12. Okay, he's fasting 40 days. Do you know that the human body can only endure about 40 days without eating? No food for 40 days. And, and you're about at the point of death. And you're very close. People have done hunger strikes. Some have gone a little longer. Some have a little shorter. But around 40 days is about it. You know, you're, you're at the end of... So Jesus has fasted for 40 days, and Luke says, and he was hungry. You better believe he was hungry, right? You better believe that he looked at that stone and thought, my word, you know, it does look like a loaf of bread. And there are these, these precedents for food miracles in the Bible. And so the devil says to him, you know, turn this limestone into pumpernickel. I don't know why pumpernickel, but I'm sure it was something like, turn this limestone into pumpernickel and have something to eat. And Jesus refuses. He refuses because he knows that there is no shortcut. That if he has told people, trust God, he will provide, he too has to trust that God will provide. Not taking a shortcut, not putting himself first. He won't live for power. 
Jesus knows that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I think we've somehow forgotten that some way in our world. He he faces the second temptation. The serpent says, you know, or the the devil says to him, uh, you know, all this authority I'll give to you. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. I will give you power over the world. Every knee will bow to you. Every tongue will confess to you that you're you're king. All you have to do is bow down. It's the same temptation that Adam and Eve face in the garden. The serpent says to the, to the woman, you know, when you eat this fruit, you will not surely die. God knows that when you eat it, you will be like Him, knowing good and evil. Jesus faces the same temptation, the temptation to grasp hold of divinity, to make Himself a God even though He is one. St. Paul says this in, in Philippians, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not, contount, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know what? Someday every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is God. Every knee will bow to Him, but He does not take a shortcut. He does not avoid the cross. He also will not doubt God's love. He won't doubt God's ability to, to come through for him. He doesn't doubt that God is at work in his life. I saw this television show um, several years ago. It was like a talk show. I mean, I don't know what kind it was, you know. It's one of those mind-numbing waste of time, okay? So, uh, confession time. It's already out there. All right, so I'm watching this waste of time show, and here's what it was. It was a, these, um, these women were on there, and, um, and their husbands had been set up, unbeknownst to them. They were going to be, uh, they were kind of lured to some, you know, restaurant or some public place where there was a hidden camera set up, and, and some very attractive woman would come and make advances on this man. He has no idea, and they're filming it. The question is, how will he respond? Now, I watched this, and I felt really sorry for these guys. I mean, I'm thinking to myself, you know, they're being trapped. And then I didn't feel sorry for him because I'm thinking to myself, but you're married, you know. I mean, you, this shouldn't be a hard thing for you. You should win this one. You know, you should come out looking very good. But the whole thing was that it was, it was supposed to be a test. You know, it was all fun and games for television. The point, of course, though, is I guess that there actually are services that do this. There are actually services out there that, that can try to see how people react. It's the basic premise of the same temptation before Jesus. Are you sure that God's going to come through for you? I mean, you have put yourself out there. You have said, I trust fully in Him. But how much can you really trust in Him? I remember several years ago my, when I first started to drive. My buddy was driving before I was. His name was Rob, and he had this little car he just bought. And, um, and it was right at the time where seatbelt laws came out, uh, so in the 80s. and can date myself. And I remember, um, I, remember I, I put on the seatbelt, first of all, because it was the law, and I always obey the law. Um, and second of all, because um, I didn't really trust my friend. You know, he wasn't a very good driver. He was new at this thing. And, um, and I remember pulling on the seatbelt while he was driving, and it would move. And it was like, you know, I never wore seatbelts before, so I was completely new to this thing. And, and I said to him, your seatbelts don't work. And he said, oh, no, they work. I'm like, no, look, there's no way this is going to hold me back. And I would pull on it, and 
it would snap back. He said, well, it works on the inertia principle. You know, it, it, doesn't, need, it doesn't work till you need it. I'm like, no, this thing doesn't work. And we're driving down the road, probably 45 miles an hour, and he slams on the brakes. I mean, just come to a, you know, give it all you got. And he slams on the brakes. guess what? They work, you know. And the seatbelt held me. This is sort of the devil's temptation to Jesus. Hey, I'm not saying God won't come through for you. I'm just saying slam on the brakes and make sure. Just prove to me that he will come through for you. See what happens. The temptations that Jesus faces are the same temptations that we face all the time. Day after day, year after year. Put yourself first. Look out for numero uno. Worry about me first. And then maybe there's some room for others. I always think that when I'm on the airplane, you know, and, and the, um, the flight attendant says, you know, if you're traveling with a small child and the oxygen mask falls out, put it on yourself first and then assist the child. Well, that's probably good advice. I mean, it probably does make sense. I always think, who could do that? You know, what parent would not, like, save their child first, even though it probably makes sense? Time is running out on your life. Be the God you were always made to be. Go be the one that you, you know you have a destiny out there. Go grab it before your time runs out on you. And you can't always see God, you know? God doesn't, well, he doesn't always show up in a, in a physical form. In fact, you can't see Him or touch Him or, or, or feel it. He's not verifiable by your senses. Are you sure He's really there? Because if not, refer to uh, temptations number one and number two. There's a different way to go about this. And we face these all the time, and Jesus did too. Did you hear the last sentence that Luke offered to us? He said, when the devil had finished, he departed from him forever and never came back again. No, that's not what he says. He departed from him until when? Until an opportune time. He's coming back. He comes back for Jesus just like he comes back for us. And the whole Lenten journey is this. The whole Lenten journey is about us reminding ourselves every year, doing this thing over and over and over again, let's go back to first steps. Let's go back to what it means to walk with the Lord. In the text, it always happens right after His baptism. Walking with the Lord, you know, right after His baptism. Right after ours. Walking with Jesus is about saying no to selfishness, no to the quest for power, no to, to doubt and uncertainty about God, and saying yes, yes to others, yes to humility, yes to service, yes to faith. I will believe. I will live by faith and not by sight. I will trust that God is there for me, that God is there for us. I have, um, I have this uh, book at home. Um, it was from the sort of business world. It was called What Would Machiavelli Do? I think I've mentioned it before. What Would Machiavelli Do? And it was kind of written as a satire piece that um, kind of picked up on the What Would Jesus Do? Well, what would Machiavelli do? He would do the exact opposite of what Jesus would do. And, and you remember Machiavelli he wrote this book called The Prince where he tells this, uh, this uh, emperor how to sort of you know, become the, uh, the most effective leader he can. And, and, and so the book is filled with all sort of uh, satirical uh, chapters like um, what would Machiavelli do? He would exploit himself only slightly less than he exploits others. <laughs> you know, he would look out for number one. What would Machiavelli do? Here's another chapter. He would be in love with his destiny. 
He knows that he was created to be a God and he's going to go out and be the God he was created to be. What would Machiavelli do? He would move forward like a great shark eating as he goes. There is no mercy, there is no concern for anything else other than gobbling up the most that he can get. Stanley Bing, the the author of What Would Machiavelli Do, says this, Ultimately, if you looked at somebody who lived like a Machiavellian, somebody who did exactly, actually, what the devil suggests that Jesus does, if you saw someone who lived like that, that person might look like quite, quite a success. But they would be empty. That there would be there would be nothing. The sense of, of doing for self, uh, of going only for power, of not living by faith. So what would Jesus do? Well, he wouldn't live like Machiavelli, I'll tell you that. What would Jesus do? He would look at life with a radical difference, a willing to live radically different, a, a, a willingness to trust God with everything. That's what Jesus would do. And I think that's what He calls us to do as well. Don't you? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.